This is the MIT Alumni Books Podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. Power corrupts. Cultures clash. Roles reverse. Youth rebel. Icons crumble. These are just a few of the contemporary phenomena making headlines in our newspapers today. But travel back with my guest, Anjali Mitter Duva, nearly 500 years to Jaisalmer in the west of India, and you'll find many of the same forces at play. Like much great fiction, Duva's debut novel, Faint Promise of Rain, published this past fall by She Writes Press, provides readers with much familiarity in human conflict to access, despite being set in a far-off place and time. The story of two brothers and two sisters and the divergent lives their paths take as they struggle with identity or stray from duty, Faint Promise of Rain, though written by an alumna with a master's in city planning, is really a study in characters planning their new lives. Anjali Mitterduva, thanks for joining me. Why did you write this book now? It was a confluence of things that just came together for me. I hadn't intended to set about writing a book. But in 2001, I traveled to India, where my father is from, taking my husband there for his first visit to India. And uh, I wanted to take him to Rajasthan, which is, to me, just one of the most beautiful, kind of magical parts of India out in the desert, northwest part of, um, of Rajasthan, and reaching out towards Pakistan. It's also, I think, for first-time travelers to India, one of the most accessible areas. It's not as crowded, hot, but it's desert hot. It's not humid hot. And Rajasthan draws a lot of its revenue from tourism, and so there's a lot of attention to services and tourism. And it is full of these just beautiful castles and palaces that just rise out of the sand. I mean, especially in Jaisalmer, which is really far out in the desert. Just rise out of the sand like a mirage. Everything is orange and brown and ochre tones in terms of architecture. And then everything else is very bright, you know, the bright blue sky, and the bright sunshine, the very bright clothing of the people there. So it really, it really tickles, you know, all the senses. I was looking in a guidebook, there was this little anecdote that said that in Rajasthan, and this, is, this shows up in the, on the first pages of my book, it is so dry, it rains so rarely that a child can reach the age of five and never have seen rain. And that because of that, in ancient times, in the, in the rooms of the children who lived in the palaces, the, they would paint the walls and the ceiling, sort of black and blue cloud designs, under the assumption that, that then when the real clouds came, the children wouldn't be afraid. I just, I wrote it down. I wrote it down just to save it, just because I thought it was beautiful. When I returned, I started studying Kathak dance, which is one of the classical forms of dance from India. And I had seen Kathak uh, in India growing up in my trips there. It's a very striking form of dance. Dancers dance with their bells around their ankles and very percussive. There's a lot of percussion, uh, feet stomping on the ground, different rhythms, and very mathematical. I teamed up actually with the teacher, a wonderful woman, Gretchen Hayden, uh, whose husband, George Ruckert, is a professor here at MIT in musicology. Gretchen, or Gretchen G, as we call her, wanted to start a school. So I started getting involved with her on that, and as part of that, founding this nonprofit called Chandika. I did a lot of research into the history of Kathak. The three pieces that made me start writing this book um, were one, the images that I had in my mind of Rajasthan, 
Two, this, this anecdote, which I just felt I wanted to bring to life somehow. And three, researching the history of this dance form and finding that uh, it actually, a branch of it dates back, goes back to Rajasthan and uh, to temple dancers in Rajasthan. And I started putting together the story of a family at this transition time in India's history. Emily Dickinson says the first line falls out of the sky. It's true. It's the only line that has never changed. I mean, God knows this manuscript was rewritten so many times, but that one paragraph barely changed. You're writing about a place so far off, uh, four or five hundred years prior. That presents some obstacles. What, what other obstacles get in your way of... That wasn't actually much of an obstacle, honestly. The thing about Jaisalmer, it's, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and there's very strict limitations on what can be built or destroyed there. If you go inside the citadel and take away just the power cables, the power lines, it looks like it looked back then. There are no cars. There's no, no vehicles allowed. Every now and then a motorcycle. You know, there's cows in the street. There's people building with, you know, carrying big chunks of sandstone on their heads. I mean, it looks, it was very easy to imagine what it looked like back then. And in terms of the characters, as you pointed out in your very eloquent introduction there, the family dynamics and the challenges and you know that people face they're the same you know it's human nature it's human beings so the obstacles for me were not so much in concocting the story itself it was finding the time to write uh, I was working uh, in the process of writing the book I had two children and uh, I was also starting you know volunteering for this nonprofit running it as a volunteer, executive director, freelancing, raising kids, etc. So the challenge was really just buckling down and finding the time to write. The other challenge was more in the obstacle, I'm going to call it a challenge, um, was in the publishing process because this book became ready to be published at a time of immense transition in the publishing industry. I think I might have had an easier time had I sat down to write it 10 years ago and tried to publish it eight years ago. But because of the time it took me to get it out there, uh, I ended up in a, in a time where you know big publishing houses are eating each other up and uh, there's fewer and fewer options um, in terms of traditional publishing for authors. And publishers are facing a financial crisis to some extent uh, in part brought on by the sort of democratization of writing and publishing where anybody can put stuff up online or write and self-publish. And, and so there's this, this big gap where my book, you know, I'm a, I have, I'm, I'm a no name for the moment. <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't a recognized name. I didn't have a big platform. Uh, and so I wasn't an obvious moneymaker for a big publisher. On the other hand, I had this work that was, you know, has been termed literary, that editors liked. So I got a lot of what I call good rejections. This is a wonderful book, da-da-da, uh, you know, the characters, the story, the setting. It's unlike anything we've published, therefore we can't basically take a risk on it. It took a while to find a publisher that was offering an option for authors like me, willing, more willing to take a risk because they're more nimble and um, more committed to authors and their works than to, you know, making a lot of money. Readers learn quite a bit about Katak dance in this. Maybe you could read uh, this portion from uh, Mahendra 
uh, who's left his family to try out the soldier's life, uh, proving himself uh, on the first night with his uh, with his new. Well, he's joined. He's joined a troop who he believes to be well-meaning, and he he's hoping to become a warrior, even though he is a dancer, and he'll find out that making the switch is not that easy. So he's in the desert. This is the desert at night. Mahendra swallowed hard. Behind him, most of the men had sat back down around the newly fed fire. They did not really care what happened to him. He could run, but there was nowhere to go. He took another step forward. The horse closest to him, a proud black one, shook his head and neighed, exposing long teeth. Mahendra took a breath and the dancer in him took over. Out of his mouth came dance syllables, which he recited as he stepped forward toward the horse. The animal's ears twitched and pitched forward. The horse lowered his head. Mahendra reached out his hand, and the horse nuzzled it with his lips, breath warm and moist. Up so close to the animal, Mahendra could see how long its legs were, long legs to keep its body away from the scorching sand. He put his hand on the horse's flank. Mahendra reached up farther and caught a handful of mane. It was rough and tangled, but easy to hold on to. Tugging on the mane, my brother took a leap and threw his right leg over the horse. The instant he was on tension shot through the animal's body. It threw itself back violently and whinnied. The others, quiet until now, joined in as they pawed the sand. Mahendra gripped the rough hair with both hands and tightened his hold with his knees. His mouth was dry. When he opened it, no sound came out. The horse bolted, jolting him back. In a moment, they were careening into the darkness. Mahendra was thrown painfully forward and back. The sounds of the other horses, the voices and drumbeats around the fire all fell away. In terror, Mahendra closed his eyes tight, willing the horse to stop. It didn't even slow down. But out of the fear ringing in Mahendra's ears emerged the rhythm of the horse's pounding hooves as it galloped over the sand. It was a syncopated four-beat rhythm, with the slightest of pauses barely perceptible while all four feet flew in midair. One, two, three, four, pause. One, two, three, four, pause. Da gitette, da gitette, da gitette, da gitette. Mahendra laughed, but the sound was carried away on the wind. He slid easily into the rhythm and dared to open his eyes. He was surrounded by shades of black. Below him, the horse's body was a gleaming silver black. Farther down, the ground was a shade lighter, with occasional coal-colored clumps blurred by speed and flying sand. Ahead of the horse and man, dunes loomed like impenetrable shadows. Above them, an endless sky sparkled with stars. Mahendra's hair streamed back as he lifted his head to look up. He was one with the horse, with the desert, with the sky. Dance in such a way that you become one with everything, Bapu had taught him as he had taught me. Finally, Mahendra understood what this meant. Mahendra's Rite of Initiation in Faint Promise of Rain. I was also reading um, uh, the book, and you were writing it at a time of enormous change in India in terms of 
protests over the gang rapes in in the cities uh, in the countryside mm-hmm. too, yeah. and this uh, huge flux. And we've got in uh, Adi a um, young woman um, undergoes trauma. Um, we've got uh, corrupt. I don't, I don't know if you call them clergy, but um, and. Uh, and just essentially a uh, a male-dominated world. Has India changed that much? Uh, well, you know, yes and no. It's interesting. The dichotomy of, you know, how women are treated in India has always, for me, been uh, a mystery, how, how it can survive this way for so long, that women, on the one hand, are revered as, you know, the mother, capital M, the giver of life, the sustainer. And on the other hand, there is some circumstances, a blatant disregard for uh, the, the rights of women. So if you look at it that way, then it hasn't changed, right? Because the characters in the book, these are temple dancers who are given or sold to the temple. They're considered auspicious. They're considered sacred. When they are dancing, you, no one is allowed to touch them. Uh, they're revered. They're, they're auspicious presences at weddings, at births, at big events, and they are, you know, vessels of the divine. And yet, you know, the other side is that they have to give themselves to their patrons, who they do, they do not choose. And the patrons pay the temple in money, in um, whatever forms of payment, they, they sustain the temple. And there's a scene in the book, uh, one of the characters, for example, isn't allowed into the inner sanctum where the the, the shrine for the deity Krishna is because, you know, she's menstruating and so therefore she's unclean. And yet, you know, three days later she will be this revered, sacred vessel of the divine. It's so, I don't know, I, it, it's such a complicated issue. It's so complicated. It goes so far back. Uh, I don't have an answer. In writing this book, I wasn't necessarily searching for an answer, but it, it helped see the different sides, even if it doesn't explain them. It's the story of Adira, um, seen in one respect. It's a very simple arc of her coming of age, deciding what to do with her life, um, and and embracing certain kinds of power and, and trying to discard other kinds. But I found the most ambitious thing is the point of view. It's, it's um, unlike any other I'd read. I'm curious about the inspiration to tackle that. Because we hear the entire book through Adira's uh, point of view, while at the same time, uh, chapter by chapter, you take us through each character's development and deep inside each character's head. Uh, at one point, I realized this must be what complete omniscience is for a god or a goddess in this case. I'll admit it was a bit of a risk, but I really did believe in it. The book started out in an early draft uh, in third person. But it was a shifting third person, like a close third. I actually wanted Adira to be a composite of how everybody else saw her. And I wanted the reader to see her in that way and make up his or her own mind. I realized after I wrote a draft and I started getting feedback that that was maybe a little too contrived or honestly too cowardly. People said, I love Adira, but I want to know more about her. What is she thinking? What, this, she's at the center of this, and yet I can't put my finger on her. And I realized perhaps I had been trying to avoid that as a writer. Sometimes there are things you avoid because you know they're going to be difficult. But ultimately, tackling them is what is going to make your book much better and make you a better writer. 
And I thought, well, the thing about Adhira is she is special. She is divine, in a sense. Uh, so maybe I need to relate it through her. Your degree in city planning, how well is that at work here? Did you learn, you didn't learn how to write fiction at MIT during your time here? <clears throat> you were at Brown before this. I was at Brown before International Development Studies. Then I worked for a couple of years at a little economic development consulting com uh, firm. And that gave me a taste. That, that's actually the two years that I worked there. I, that's when I realized that what I really wanted to do at the time was urban planning. I've always been interested in cities. I've always I've lived in large cities. I grew up in Paris, in France. And growing up, one of my favorite places to take visiting relatives was the catacombs, much to my parents' dismay, and the sewer system. Uh, because I was fascinated. I was fascinated by all these networks that are hidden uh, sort of the skeleton, uh, the, the digestive system, you know, all these things that, that, that make a city function. Then I realized I wanted to focus on that, on cities and infrastructure. And I came to MIT. I worked a bunch with Paul Levy. I actually ended up taking half my courses in civil engineering. I think it was perhaps to be an antidote to Brown. Brown for me was very, they, they weren't down to earth enough. I realized I'm, I'm a pretty concrete person. And, and MIT was so practical, you know, here's, we're going to do this project and it's actually taking place across the street and you can look. And I was really fascinated in how do you plan a vast infrastructure project? How do you keep things going while changing them? How do you finance it? How do you deal with all the different stakeholders and um, come to an agreement? And so, so that's what I did. And then I worked for a number of years in infrastructure planning, mostly in developing countries. While the work was fantastic, traveling around to all these places all the time is not conducive to raising a family, at least not in the way that I wanted to do it. Life takes you in funny directions sometimes. I do actually find that a lot of my MIT education comes to work here, and but it's... Um, in fiction? In fiction. I have planned a four-book project. From the moment I started writing the first one, I realized it was going to be a four-book project. Now my life is structured a little better for me to spend more time writing, so hopefully it won't be 10 years per book. Throw a challenge out to your fellow alumni or to the MIT community, either to right some of the wrongs you've encountered in your work or that you've addressed in your writing. I think the ability to write well and improve your writing is crucial for anybody at MIT. When I was here, I taught, it's a writing class program for, um, for undergrads to improve their communication skills. I found it really fascinating to teach that class because uh, the students were, I mean, amazingly smart, right? I mean, a bunch of them had already patents pending with NASA and all kinds of stuff that made me feel very small. And yet I could see that there was sometimes a gap in uh, their written communication skills. I remember showing them this example uh, of a written piece of communication and it had to do with the challenger and how there was somebody who had actually foreseen the problem with an O-ring, but what he was trying to draw to people's attention was so, so mixed into other things and not clear enough that this piece ring a bell. I mean, it didn't put up a flag for anybody. And so this really resonated with them that this is why it's so important, even if you're not going to be writing a lot, what you do write needs to be very, compellingly written. Customers who bought your book also bought uh, I Am Lala, um, Fall on Your Knees by Anne-Marie MacDonald, um, The Moon is Down by John Steinbeck. 
I was very pleased to see that. I'm keeping good company, apparently. <laughs> but tell me, what else are you reading right now? Yeah, I just read I Am Malala because I, well, A, everybody I think should read it. Um, I run a children's book club, which I've been doing for two years now with a group of nine kids in Arlington where I live. And it's been honestly just a fantastic experience. And I've been trying specifically to expose them to books that they're not taking out of their school library right now. And it was, we had a fantastic conversation about it. This is with fifth graders. And we were talking about you know, all kinds of things. And pretty tough subject. But I think it's important for kids to realize you know, what is going on in the world and form their own opinions and, and how to learn from it. Now we switched. I had a focus on um, human interaction with the animal world. And so there's a book by Kenneth Opel called uh, Half Brother. And it's a family whose father is an anthropologist. And he's part of this uh, study to see if, if chimpanzees can learn advanced language in sort of sign form. And so they end up having a chimpanzee live in their home. And, and I'm reading, um, actually I just started reading Wolf Hall. I'm on a mission to read very strongly written historical fiction. Faint Promise of Rain by Anjali Mitter Duva is available online now or from your favorite local bookstore. Anjali Mitter Duva, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. This was great. A lot of fun.